I love Thy church, O God, her walls before Thee stand, dearest, the apple of Thine eye, engraven on Thy hand. Indeed, that is God's perspective of us today. We're the apple of His eye. We are instructing angels today. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 3. So we love and serve one another, live in harmony. Angels can look at that and just say, wow, what a great work God has done. Well, before we begin, or as we begin, I want to tell you of a conversation I had with Yvonne just uh, this past week. She she purchased a course online. It's a it's a course from Great Christian Courses. Uh, great, great courses. I forget exactly what it is. But some kind of place where you can purchase uh, a bunch of lectures. And uh, she purchased this course called How to Listen to and Understand Great Music. Downloaded 48 lectures from the internet. Now they're all in MP3 and um, put on a CD and put on the iPods. And, and the plan is this, is that Carissa is going to listen to this um, with, uh, with Yvonne and they're going to go through this course as um, you know, a course working class. And so this past week they listened to the first one. They, they kind of went away to, I think, Rock Cut State Park and kind of sat and listened to their, their music course. And she told me that something their professor said in this course, said something affected this. Says in this course, we're going to study Western music. We're not going to study Asian music. We're not going to study African music. We're not going to study Middle Eastern music. Our focus is going to be upon Western music. And, and within Western music, our focus is also going to be um, not on the popular music of the day, but on that music which entered into the, the concert hall, the, the concert music we are going to focus upon. And then he said, even with this narrowed scope of music, it is as much an exercise of exclusion as it is an exercise in inclusion. And what he was saying there is that the history of Western music, concert Western music, as narrow as that is, is actually very broad still. He said it, it's not narrow enough to be exhaustive. It's just going to be a summary. And, and his battle in preaching 48, preaching, teaching, talking, 48 lectures was to figure out what he's going to leave out as opposed to what he's going to put in. And I know the battle as well. In recent weeks, we've been going through this sermon, series 12 stages in the Bible. You can see there on the overhead. And um, our aim has been to work through the historical storyline of the Bible, dividing up into 12 stages based upon Max Anders' book, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. And in my preparation each week, it has been more of an exercise of exclusion and not inclusion. I mean, I've taken out far more than I have included. I know my sermons have been long in this series, but they've been long because there's been so much. But at times, even, we didn't have time to read the whole text of Scripture that we were looking at. And I've felt like there have been times we just got to, okay, that's good, but we can't talk about that. That's good, we can't talk about that. In order to press on in these 12 weeks. And uh, we have begun each of our times with a little song. thought we'd sing it again. You guys have memorized it, but let's do it again. Twelve stages in the Bible. Let's learn them one by one. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, da-da-da-da-da, silence, gospel, Church and missions. Well, each of these stages are historical stages in the Bible. 
Um, the, I, what I've tried to do is just trace the, the history chronologically through all the Bible, starting with the, the creation account where, where earth began, where heaven began, right there with God's creation account. And then, then tracking that through, creation, fall, and the flood. And then we picked up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with the patriarchs. And, and then we know that they eventually, when the family grew up to 70, they went down into Egypt and were slavery. And we picked up the story of Israel then, taking Egypt, the Exodus, out of slavery. And then after they were taken out of slavery, they came in and they conquered the land. And historically, we watched that. And then after they conquered the land, Israel was governed by judges. And we worked through all, chronologically, through all the judges. And then we came to the kingdom stage. We, we looked at da- Saul, and can't walk there, Saul, and um, David, and Samuel, and then the divided kingdom, Israel in the north, and Judah in the south. And Israel then was wiped away by Assyria, and Judah was taken into exile. And then we, we looked at the exile and the, the different uh, waves of the exile. And then while they were there, we then saw the return and the three different waves returning back into the land to build the, the city and to build the temple. And then, in our Bible, it's a period of silence. We looked at the history from Malachi up to Matthew. And last week we looked at the history of the life of Christ. We come today to the history of the church is where we are. And um, basically what we're going to do this morning is take the same approach. You know, there are many different ways we could approach this study here this morning of, of the, the history of the church. We could look at the organization of the church, who are its leaders, what are their functions, what's the function of the congregation. We could look at the the function of the church. What's the church supposed to do? How are the members supposed to interact with each other? How about with the world? What are we supposed to do? We can look at the activities of the church. How often does it meet together? What sort of things do it do together? How are the people trained? But all those kind of just describe the church. Our aim in these sermon series has been to really track the history. And so this morning we're going to track the history of the church. A study in the book of Acts. So if you haven't turned there already, I invite you to open to the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is the book of Acts, alright? I know children, sometimes you might think it's the book of Acts, okay? But it's not. Any, anybody who pronounces it, any good preacher will pronounce this book, Acts. As I was telling us at the dinner table, as so we were talking about my sermon this morning, he said, um, Dad, I remember the time when I learned that it wasn't Acts, like this big, you know, club you chop down trees with. It was Acts. Because he was at someone's home and they were going in family worship, talking, and said, we're going to study the book of Acts. It's not an Acts. It is the book of Acts. Okay? The Acts are actions, is what you can think of this word. They are things done. They are things accomplished. Um, Proxis is the name in the the Greek text. It's just, it's, it's, it's the things done. It's actions. Now, some Bibles, like the New American Standard, says it's the Acts of the Apostles. Other Bibles just say Acts. That's fine. But some have have pointed out to me that uh, Acts of the Apostles is maybe not the best title for this book of the Bible. Really, it should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because that's really what what takes place. And and those who say such things and make a stink about it are trying to say, hey, listen, it's not just men who built the church. It was God who built the church. Now, in some measures, it is semantics. Well, is it the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Yes and yes. It is the Holy Spirit working through the Apostles to accomplish His work. So God always accomplishes His purposes. He works through the, the prayers of His people. He works through the preaching of His people. He works through the labor of His people. He works through the serving of the people. 
God builds the church. Yes, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but who caused the growth? It's God who caused the growth. And how does he do it? He does it through us. But the point is well made. The history that we see in the book of Acts is the building of the church, and it is the acts that God does. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the book of Acts records how the church was built, how it started, how it began, how it developed, some of the early problems of the church, and how it prospered and flourished and then went forth to impact the world. Let's begin in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. This morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 1 through chapter 12. Next week we'll pick up Acts chapter 13 through 28 as we think about mission. Verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up to heaven after He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. So right here we see the book of Acts is really a part two. The part one is mentioned here about the first account. The author here had composed the first account to Theophilus in which he talked about the life of Jesus. He began to do and teach, says verse 1, until the day that He was taken up into heaven And those of you who know, this is Luke who wrote this. Because the first four verses of the book of Luke, he describes, he's writing this to give an exact account for what took place through the life and ministry of Jesus. And he wrote to Theophilus. And so here's the second account written to Theophilus. It's a book of the Acts of how the church took place. And we see this starting here in verse 3. Jesus, resurrected from the dead, to these He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. You say, what, so what, what did Jesus do? After He resurrected, it was 40 days later until He ascended. What did He do? Well, He made appearances to many people. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that He appeared to over 500 at one time. He appeared to all the disciples. He appeared to... Some women, you know. But what else was he doing? He was teaching. His focus on Pete's teaching his disciples. And the topic of his teaching was the kingdom of God. That's what it says there. He presented himself alive, appearing over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. You say, what did Jesus teach? He taught of the kingdom of God. I think that Jesus at this time was trying to describe and teach His disciples about how God's working in the world was not finished. Yes, Messiah had come. Yes, His sacrifice upon the cross was sufficient for our sins. But heaven is not yet. There's still another unfolding plan of God. World history isn't going to stop at this time. It's going to continue on. It's another phase in God's program. Describing the kingdom of God. And I think that Jesus here was was talking about how, you know... uh, The kingdom of God, it's coming sort of. It's not fully there because I'm not there ruling and reigning and everyone's not bowing to me, but it's going to be there in the people who believe in me. And there will be a day when it is fully consummated, but here it's it's not going to be fully there, but there are going to be a people, there's going to be a remnant, there's going to be people who are believing and trusting in me. And these people are going to gather together in a church. It's the church I promised to build, remember, when we went up to Caesarea Philippi? And and I told you, you revealed... It was revealed to you, Simon Peter, that I was the Christ. And I said, yes, I'm going to build my church. This is God's program. This is the program in the kingdom of God. And that's what he's describing. And in verse 4, he, he described this a little bit. He said, gathering them together, 
Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, right? Stay right here, guys. But to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus put forth this time when the Holy Spirit would do his work. John immersed people in water, took them to the River Jordan, immersed them in water for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus said there would be a day in which God's people would be immersed into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come and fill His people every bit as much as John's disciples got wet, so also the Holy Spirit will fill His people. And that took place, of course, on the day of Pentecost. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2. We can go over there. We see in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, speaks about when the day of Pentecost had come. They were all together in one place. Pentecost is the name of the Feast of Weeks. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering. It's one of the three feasts that God commanded all the people of Israel to gather together before Him in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Exodus 23. The Passover, the Feast of Ingathering, and the Feast of the Harvest. Right, the, the first one is the Passover, springtime. This Ingathering is the first fruits. And then latter would be the, the time of the harvest. This takes place 50 days after the Passover. So you think about it, you start doing your math. Okay, 50 days after the Passover. Passover took place, that's when Jesus was sacrificed. Then a few days in the tomb and resurrected. And then we had 40 days of Him teaching. And then it was about seven more days, probably, until the day of Pentecost. So they were there in Jerusalem for, for seven days. About a week later, staying together, all together in one place, trying to figure out what's, what's going to take place. When is the Holy Spirit going to come? They, they didn't know it was going to come on this day. But that's the day when the church of Jesus Christ, as we know it today, started when all the people were together. And it was a strategic day, by the way. Um, when God said, hey, gather together in Jerusalem, at this time the Jews were scattered all over the world. And so you had Jews from all over the world even coming back for the Feast of Pentecost. Even Paul himself, while he was traveling, I forget whether it's Acts 21 or 22, he said, I want to make it back to Jerusalem for the celebration of the feast. And he wanted to be back even for Pentecost for that. It was just, it's a great day of celebration to people from all over the world. In fact, Yvonne and I, we went to Israel probably 12 years ago. I forget when. Our kids were real small back then. We went to Israel. And um, we happened to be in Jerusalem on Pentecost. And we were in the old city of Jerusalem, which you know, has this wall surrounded around it. And uh, you know, we, we saw the Hasidic Jews there, you know, the guys who, who wear their black hats and their black robes or whatever they do. And uh, we saw a fair number of them. But on the day of Pentecost, it was unbelievable. We went out that day, went to Bethany, I remember. And as we were getting in our tour bus, we just saw scores and scores of Jewish people. It's like they all flocked right together. And it said, you know what? Ah, that's what Pentecost is. People gathering together. So there was an opportunity strategically in God's plan which Peter could preach in Acts chapter 2. We'll see that. But we can hear in verse 2, it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. This is the coming of the Holy Spirit to dwell among God's people. And He did so in an unmistakable way. There were a gathering of people and there came a violent rushing wind. You can just imagine And just stirring up and probably imagine a wind coming right now. Listen. It's pretty quiet, right? 
This violent rushing wind, right? You've been out in the ocean, which rushing around, it's in your ears, it's just loud and chaos coming. Not only that, but also came with tongues of fire. This, this fiery tongues, whatever it was, maybe it's a, an imagery or appearance or vision or something, I'm not sure. Somehow these tongues were distributing themselves to everyone and everyone began to speak with other tongues. All of us speaking in other tongues. And nobody who had been in that room left unshaken. They're like, whoa, something different happened in our meeting today. This is not the normal normal. In fact, it was once when it took place and the Holy Spirit came and descended upon them. Jesus had promised this would come to the disciples. John 14, 25 and 26, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He says, listen, the, the Helper's coming. The Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He's going to come. The Father will send Him. Later, Jesus said in John 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's hard for the disciples to believe. Here was their leader. Here was their, the one who they're rallying around. It's to your advantage that I go away. In other words, it's better to have the Holy Spirit than it is to have Jesus walk in your presence. It's amazing as that is. It's better that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Holy Spirit here is identified as our helper, is what Jesus calls him. It is the paraclete. It's the one that calls alongside, the one that comes and encourages and helps in all things. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin, thus drawing us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us, Romans 8.13. The Spirit is the one who, who helps us pray. We don't know how to pray, Romans 8.26-27. And here, by the way, is my first point of application. By the way, my points this morning aren't going to be so much, this is this, this is this, this is this. More I'm going to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to go through Acts a little bit and just at various times, I just want to input some things for us at church so it's not just a mere history lesson. My first point is this, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. The church is not merely another man-made institution like the Rotary Club or the United Way devoted to community service. No, the church is a supernatural organization. Jesus Christ is building His church. The Holy Spirit is working in His church. We need the Holy Spirit. To try to build a church without the Holy Spirit is a lot like building a log cabin made of plastic log-looking-like substances. Right, there's a new deck substance that's come out today that uh, it's been around for some time. I've just seen it in Lowe's. I've been there recently. Someone pointed out to me recently that it's pretty expensive. It's more like a, a plastic, um, I'm not sure, it's fiber or something that, that looks like a deck. Okay? So imagine yourself making a log cabin out of some stuff like this. It may look like a log cabin. You may live in a structure like this, but it's not a log cabin. It just looks like a log cabin. To try to build a church without the Holy Spirit is like trying to build a car without an engine. You can put doors on it, you can cover it over, have a nice paint job of windows and everything, but it's not going anyplace. It's not an automobile. If you can't move, it may look like a car, but it's not a car. And likewise, you can build a building, you can gather a group of people, you can even call yourself a church without the Holy Spirit. It's not a church. Because a church isn't something that we can organize and put together by ourselves because a church is a supernatural institution created by God, built by Jesus, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. 
It's the Holy Spirit that will do miraculous things among us like He did the day of Pentecost. Let's look what took place here. Now there were Jews, verse 5 of chapter 2, living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who speak in Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we are born? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And here's the point I made before about, about Pentecost. So Jews from all around the world will gather here today to Jerusalem for the feast. Right? They all came from different cultures. They were all Jewish coming from different cultures and different places, learning different languages. And some knew Coptic and some knew Cretan and some knew Arabic and some knew other uh, different languages. And, and here they were listening to these Galileans, right? Because these are Jesus' disciples up from north in Galilee. Now they're in in Jerusalem, and we heard them speaking in their native tongue. Those who, who didn't know a word of Parthenian, grew up in Galilee their whole lives, spoke with a Galilean dialect, would come down to Jerusalem, and they spoke Parthenian, whatever language that is. I'm not sure if there's a real language, but these people from Parthenian said, it's exactly right, accent and all. And they didn't know what they were saying, they were just speaking this. And those who didn't know a word of Libyan were speaking fluent Libyan, and those who didn't know a word of Egyptian were speaking fluent Egyptian. Not just walking like an Egyptian, talking like an Egyptian is what they were doing. And, and they were amazed. These are Galileans. They don't know that language, but they're speaking this language. That is what tongues is. And that's miraculous. And that's the Holy Spirit. And when the people took notice and were confused, as it says in verse 12, saying, well, what does this mean? Are they drunk? Then that gave Peter an opportunity to then preach Jesus to him. Peter, verse 14, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them in the midst of their confusion and bewilderment, he said, Men of Judah and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2. And he basically says this. He says, That what you see is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy when the tongues would come. <coughs> And then, after Peter explained what it was, then he transitioned to the subject at hand, which was the subject of Jesus. Using tongues to get everyone's attention. The Holy Spirit did that. Allowed Peter to interpret it. And then from that point on, he preached Jesus to them. Beginning in verse 22 and ending down in verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. So this is what it's about. It's about a proof that God came in Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is the Messiah. And you killed your Messiah. At that point, their hearts were pricked. Verse 37, they heard this. They were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This will come upon you too. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who received His word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no other way to explain it. You cannot explain the tongues apart from the Holy Spirit and you cannot explain 3,000 people believing in their, repenting, turning from their sins, believing in Jesus the Savior in one message. You can't do it apart from the miraculous working of God. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. We need Him to come and convict and to do His work among us. My second point is this. We need each other. It comes in verse 42 through 47. We need each other. This is what the natural response of the Christians were. When people become Christians, they naturally bond together in churches. They bond together with other believers. They bond together in other like-minded people. It says this, 42, they were continually devoting themselves. Pros katarizo. They were with, with diligence, um, devoting, being diligent to make sure this happens, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. These are four activities that are crucial to the life of any church body. In fact, as I recall rightly, it's the four-square church, a charismatic church, which would identify these four things as their four fundamental things. The apostles' teaching, right? Gathering. The church body to hear the apostles teach a word from God. Fellowship means sharing. Just giving of themselves. What I have is yours. What yours is mine. And sharing together. The breaking of bread. Refers probably primarily to the Lord's Supper, remembering the cross of Christ, but also as reference to eating together as they did in verse 46. Gathering together to pray together. Probably the thrust here in verse 42. They, they devoted themselves to prayer together. Isn't there all communal activities? You, they, they didn't do these things alone. The apostles' teaching, right? They, they gathered together to say, well, let, let's, let's be unified of this. Let's understand Jesus the Messiah. Fellowship. You can't have fellowship by yourself because fellowship means sharing. It's one person with another. Sharing time, sharing resources, sharing words, sharing lives. Breaking of bread together. Speaks about sharing meals together. Speaks about eating together. And prayer. You can pray alone, certainly here, but the preference here is that they're together. Here here we see these people doing life together. It's a picture of the church. We need each other. For the church to take place, you need each other there are people called out of the world who found a common bond through faith in Christ, sharing their lives with one another. That's what we need. And you get a sense of how closely the lives were knit in verse 43 and following. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as any might have need. Day by day, it's like every day, <clears throat> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, day by day, continue with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then you can turn over to chapter 4 and see much the same thing taking place. Look at chapter 4, verse 32. 
and the congregation of those who had believed were one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but they had all things in common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as any had need. I mean, that is the life of the church. That's why you need each other. The, the great unity, great caring, great love. At this point, it is appropriate for me to ask you, examine your life. Do you know anything about this? Does your life come close to this? Are you sharing your lives with the people in the church? Or for you, is Rock Valley Bible Church just Sunday morning and that's it? Does it go beyond? We need each other. That is the picture of the church that we see here in Acts. And that's what God, God built. I don't think it was an accident that the church arose and they were together and that, that caused also more and more people to come and be attracted. People are attracted when they see other people love and serve one another. See, we're talking here about people who are with one another, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. You know, it's not an accident today that we have a potluck meal. We have that so as to cultivate this togetherness and this oneness as a church body. Is it your pattern to stay for the potluck? That's what we need. We need each other. We need you to stay. We need to eat. Share homes. Do you, do you have people over your house for dinner? Are you sharing meals with each other? This should happen continuously throughout the week. We need each other. But we need more than that. We also need Jesus. We see this in Acts 2 through 4. We need Jesus. It's obvious we need Jesus, right? I mean, he's the, he's the Messiah. He's the one that sacrificed upon the cross for our sins. He's the one we believe in. We are Christian churches, right? We are, we are those who believe in Christ. But I want to show you here in Acts 2 that what the apostles preached about was all about Jesus. Here in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached Jesus. And now let's go back to chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then comes a quote in Psalm 16. We don't have time to read it, but it talks about how the resurrection from the dead was promised through his Holy One. And then he says, hey, David is dead. Who wrote that psalm? But I know that Jesus wasn't abandoned to the tomb. And then he continues here in verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up again from the dead to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this, right, tongues, this Holy Spirit, which you both see and hear. In verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter preached Jesus to them. I mean, the whole sermon is about Jesus. There's one point, it's just Jesus. Let me just tell you about Him. Let me tell you about His life. Let me tell you about His death, His resurrection. Let me tell you then about His blessing that's come upon you. Let me tell you that He is the one seated high and exalted. Let me tell you that you're the one that killed Him. It's His message. And they all believed in the name of Jesus. And then in chapter 3, 
Peter had a chance to preach again. He healed a lame beggar and said, what is this that took place? And Peter then had an opportunity to explain what took place. Everyone was filled with wonder and amazement what happened. Chapter 3, verse 10. Peter said, okay, well, before I had this tongue, this is an opportunity to preach, and now I have this healed, this lame beggar. Now i got an opportunity to preach. What are you going to preach? You're going to preach the same one-point sermon. You're going to preach about Jesus. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The patriarchs. The God of our Father has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in His name, it's at the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man, which you see and know, and the faith which comes through Him and given Him this perfect health in the presence of you all. He said, Jesus is the guy that granted health here. And then he called them repentance. Verse 19, repent and return so your sins may be wiped away. Verse 26, for you first God raised up his servant Jesus and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Calling the people to repent and calling them to turn to believe in Jesus because we need Jesus. It's what they preached. It's what the people believed. And it's what caused this tremendous unity is the faith in Christ. Well, Peter continued on, but it caused problems with the religious leaders of the day, the Sadducees. They were distressed, it says in chapter two, 4, verse 2, because they were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they put him in jail. And then they brought him to give an account. So, what are you doing filling Jerusalem with this teaching? And then Peter said this, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8. He preaches a message again. What do you think he's going to preach? He's got one point. What's his point? Hannah, what's his point? Points Jesus. Okay? That's your outline right there. Jesus, he preaches. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as thou this man was made well, let it be known to you all and the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders which became the chief cornerstone. And there's salvation no one else, for there's no other name under heaven is given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus. You guys need Jesus. It's the story of the church. The story we need to hear. We need to hear the story of Jesus. We need to hear how He was crucified for our sins. We need to hear of how He was raised for our justification. We need to um, hear about Jesus seated in the heavens. And you hear about Jesus, the King of Kings, coming to rule and reign. That's what the church has been about. It's always been about Jesus. Peter preached Jesus in Acts 2, and Acts 3, and Acts 4. But, but I think even my point here is bigger than just we need to just preach about Jesus. No, we need to embrace everything about Him. And it's not merely even that we need to believe, but I think also we need to love Him. We need to spend time with Him. We need to commune with Him. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. I, I love how... This is described here from Peter and John. Here's the antagonistic council observing the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated and untrained men. I mean, these weren't great men. These weren't erudite men. These were just common fishermen, laborers, union workers. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So here were people who were with Jesus and Jesus changed them. So they went out and speak, spoke boldly for Him. And I just say that this is talking about 
Peter and John were with Jesus physically, but I think the truth is well taken that if you spend time with Jesus in your closet, spend time alone, loved you, it's going to affect you. We need Jesus to infect us and to affect us. As we do that, then the church will will progress. By the time we reach the end of chapter 4, we're up to 5,000 believers in the church, growing by leaps and bounds. Jesus was working. The Holy Spirit had come. But not all was good. In chapter 5, we read of the story of husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, who wanted to get into this whole sharing thing. So they sold their property, held back some for themselves, but said, which was okay, if they'd have held back some and said, well, we sold this, but we need to live on some of this, but here we'll give you half of our proceeds. That would be okay. They lied, though. They said, we gave it all, though they kept it for themselves. They died on the spot since they were convicted of their lying. But that didn't stop the incredible advance of the church. Many were coming to faith in Christ. Many were coming into the church. And with greater numbers come greater burdens. We see the burdens coming here in chapter 6. I'll just read it. I'm sure you're familiar with this story. Now at this time when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews among the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked, the daily serving of food. So the twelve, some in the congregation of the disciples said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Paul's statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. With so many people, the twelve apostles simply couldn't handle serving 5,000 people. The care of widows was one place where care is being neglected. There may have been others. We know of this. It's not the apostles didn't think it was worthy. It's not the apostles didn't think this was good enough for them. It wasn't that they thought that was below them. It's the apostles were, were being burdened by that and they couldn't do that. They were neglecting prayer in the ministry of the Word. They couldn't do that amidst all their other responsibilities. So they came with a plan. With the help of the congregation, they selected seven men who are qualified, spirit-led men to devote themselves to ministry of mercy. I call these people proto-deacons. These were like the, the, first, um, the first form of deacons in the church. You want to say, what does deacon do in church? It is just right here. Devotes themselves to ministry of mercy. They weren't officially deacons because they hadn't come into church in the being yet. Because the church here, you've got to understand also, it's, it's kind of just molding. All of a sudden, you've got 3,000 people. What are you going to do? You've got 5,000 people. And it, it took some time to figure out how it's going to work itself out, especially as people scattered and worked itself out with deacons helping in the matter of widows. And here comes our application. I said, we need servants. We need deacons. But more than that, we need servants. We need, we need deacons in official capacity. But we also need servants in an unofficial capacity. I think the idea here is there was a burden coming because there's so many of the people and then we have people arise to help ease the burden. You can't have a church of whatever, 3,000, 5,000 people without others serving and helping. And so also in the church, we need servants. And I say many of you at Rock Valley Bible Church do serve. I thank you for that. You bring snacks. You help in the nursery. You teach children's church. You help with the setup. You help with the teardown. You help with the bulletins or you help with PowerPoint or you volunteer meals or you, you give. And it's good. It's needed. I'm thankful for that. But I, I would even encourage you to press your service on beyond that 
beyond just making a Sunday morning happen, I think about these widows. This is a life-on-life ministry. There was, there was care for people here. There was love for people. And so I would encourage you to do that. Care for people. Love people. Pray with people. Be help, find out what their needs are and, and give to their needs if they're financial needs. You know, far better even that you know somebody has a need and you, you, just, you give them, you help them, you, you give them things or you, you help them somehow or you teach them a skill or you, you come and you gather people's house to, to do some work together. Be a blessing to people. Serve others. Uh, you know, a good example of that. Garth, I remember when you guys were kind of without a house. I had several families came up to you and said, you can live with us for a while, right? That's great. It didn't come to fruition because you found a place to live but um, with your in-laws. But that's the kind of thing. When someone, someone doesn't have a place to live, let's take them into our homes. we got an extra room. It's going to be tight for a while. Maybe it's not the long-term solution. We don't like freeloading here, but you know what? You're in need and I know you and I love you. And so, so let's come on. That's what the church needs. We need, we need servants. Well, the church continued to grow and continued to have problems. Face this time the problems came from without. Uh, the problems from within came because of too many people. The problem from out became because of some of the things that were taught. At the end of chapter six, we see Stephen, one of these protodeacons, who had been uh, appointed to serve in these ways, uh, was being charged with heresy. Some were secretly introduced to save. Verse eleven. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God, and some have said, verse thirteen. This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. We have heard him say this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now, there's probably some truth in this because the law, only a shadow, could never make the worshippers perfect. But the new covenant can. And so there's a, a disavowing of the law for the new. There's some truth to that. It was a partial truth. It wasn't quite right. But they stood Jesus, Stephen up before them and said, Tell us, give us an account. Are these things so? Is what the high priest says in chapter 7, verse 1. Stephen stood up, strong, convincing, right on. Preached chapter 7 of Acts. It's a great sermon talking about the history of, of Israel. And basically, this is like, the main point of his message is that God works far beyond than just the temple. It's not just the temple where things are happening here. I mean, think about it. And he takes about all the different ways. It was Abraham when he was called Stir and Ur of the Chaldeans. Right? And when was Moses called? He was called in Midian. And all these things. God's throne isn't here in Jerusalem. It's in high. It's on heaven. So we preach this. It's not just about the temple, guys. There's something better than that. And then he said in verse 51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. You know how it ends, right? This was his last sermon. This was his farewell sermon because his hearers stoned him because they did not appreciate what he was saying. Stoned him to death, picked up stones, clubbed him with it. Listen, when you confront others with sin, they don't like it. And they'll either flee, or get angry, throw stones at you, whatever. We have much to learn from the life of Stephen. First of all, we need to learn to really love his name, right? It's a great name. 
Okay? We have other things to learn from Stephen. No, we don't need to be stoned like him, but we do need boldness like he had. Here, chapter 7. We need boldness. We need the Holy Spirit. We need each other. We need Jesus. We need servants. We also need boldness. We need boldness to stand up and tell others of the sin. We need boldness to tell others they need to believe in Jesus, the righteous one. We need to tell others. We need to have the boldness to say salvation is only in Jesus. In fact, I think boldness is one of the keys to early church growth. Back in chapter 4, verse 31, it said, When they prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. I just encourage you guys to, to, to speak Jesus to people. Spread beyond. Spread the message wherever your influence goes. Learn from Stephen. You never know the effect that it might have. First of all, one of the effects here, verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1, was it was scattered. Right? This was, in some sense, the launch of the missions movement of the Christian church, because up to this point, they were still in Jerusalem. And by the way, it wasn't just you know, two days. It was, it was several years, probably, they were still in Jerusalem. And as a result of this, everyone was scattered except the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. They all, they all scattered abroad and the word began to spread. We'll hit more of that next week when we look at missions. But we see that it spread up north, I'm sorry, up south to Judea and north to Samaria. And just, just spread there and then it's continued to go. That's one effect it might have. But another effect it might have is even upon Saul. It says in chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement, put him to death. This may have been the seeds of his conversion right here. As Saul heard the message clearly, saw a man willing to die, saw a man dying, with words on his voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Hmm. Saul saw someone die like that. Saw someone had boldness. Saw someone who had a passion for Christ. And it was in chapter 9 that we read of the conversion of Saul. Chapter 9, verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christianity, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light fell from heaven all around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. Saul was going to the city with his friends. After he'd been blinded like this, didn't know what to do. Meanwhile, God appeared to Ananias and told him, verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings of the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed. So here's the Saul, blinded, going to the city. God calls Ananias. Hey, go meet with the Saul. So Ananias departed. Verse 17 of chapter 9. Entered the house. After laying his hands on your brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And let's come in here. He was filled. With, we just need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit needs to come. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. Some of his first actions was to go right into Damascus, go into the synagogues, and say, Jesus is the Son of God. And he was confounding the Jews. Verse 22. 
proving that this Jesus was the Christ. That's what he did. Here he was on the road to persecute Christians. God saved him. Saved him in the most unlikely circumstances. It wasn't like he was saved in a Christian meeting. It wasn't like he, you know, heard some, you know, walking along and heard some radio preacher over there and watch and listen and get drawn in by some human means. It's totally God. God appears to him and says, Saul, come. And then, I love even how he says he's a chosen instrument of mine. On the road to persecute Christians, stopped in his tracks. And from that day forward, Saul, who came to know as Paul, one of the greatest spokesmen the church has ever known, ended up writing 13 books of the New Testament, education and giftedness matched by nobody else in the history of the church. I think God said, I need him now. So he did. Jethro Sanders written about Paul. A present day parallel of Paul would be one who could speak in Peking in Chinese, quoting Confucius and Mencius, write closely reasoned theology in English and expound it in Oxford and defend his cause before the Soviet Academy of Sciences in Russian in Moscow. That's who Paul was. He was the right man in the right place at the right time. And God said, he's the man I'm going to use to build the church. I just say this, the point of application is this, we need God. We need God. This is, this is the point of Acts chapter 9. It's God who's building His church. It's Jesus who's building His church. We need God to call people to Himself. We need God to take the bold words that we say to others and cause them to penetrate deep into the hearts of people and change them radically so they can see their sin and see the glories of Christ. We need God to convict people of their sin. We need God to convert people. Because that's what Acts chapter 9 is about. Acts chapter 10, we see the same thing. Miraculous circumstances take place bringing the gospel to the Gentiles and God building His church. We're introduced to chapter, verse 2, of a devout man whose name's Cornelius. He gave alms to Jewish people. He prayed to God continually. He was a God-fearing man. God appeared to him and said, verse 3, Cornelius, verse 4, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. He's staying in a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And here was Cornelius in Caesarea. He says, go north. It's Joppa. Just send your men. Go find this guy, Peter. He's staying at Tanner's house. And call him back. That is miraculous in and of itself. But while these men are on their way, Peter, as it says later, was um, on the, the roof a little before dinner time, seeing a vision about this food coming down which was unclean. As a Jewish person said, he said, I've never eaten that. And the vision said, eat. He said, I've never eaten. He said, eat. Three times. So whatever. And then, if you look in chapter 10, verse 19, he says, behold, three men are downstairs looking for you. Get up, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings. I've sent them myself. So this is just God working to build this church. How else can you explain two simultaneous visions of these men from Cornelius going up to Joppa, Peter praying, seeing this vision, saying, okay, you know what? These guys are coming and going down and talking to them. It's a vision to Cornelius, a vision to Peter, and these visions are the means through which God brought the gospel to the Gentiles. It was God doing the work. It was God bringing the gospel. We need God. We need God. The story, that's where the story of the book of Acts is, the story of the acts of the Holy Spirit, as much as it is the story of the acts of the apostles. Because you just see, if your eyes open, you just see God working and weaving in the working of the early church. Finally, we need prayer. We need prayer. This is Acts chapter 12. 
In verse 2, we read that Herod put James to death with the sword. He's a leader in the church. So now he's going after Peter. He arrests him in verse 3. And his plan was to kill Peter. So Peter, verse 5, was in prison. And when the people knew that Peter had been in prison, what did they do? They prayed. Look at, look at what it says. Prayer was being made fervently by the church to God. Earnestly praying. I, I trust at Rock Valley Bible Church, if I was thrown in prison, you all would be gathering together fervently praying for me. I hope that's the case. And a miraculous then release from prison. We don't have time to look at that, but an angel came basically and woke Peter up and Peter walked out past all these guards. They didn't know what... Guards never knew what happened. Peter was out in the street. He came to himself and then he went to the house of Mary. As it says here in verse 12, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. I don't know how he knew that they were there praying, but they were praying. There was an impromptu prayer meeting Funny story about going to the door and knock. Rhoda comes. Says, hey, is Peter released? And goes back. No, no, no. You're just dreaming. He's not there. He's in prison. Remember, we're praying for his release from prison. He's in prison. That's what they were doing. It's funny. But then Peter came into their midst. He described how the Lord had led them out of prison. He said, in verse 17, report these things to James and to the brethren. They went to another place because they had to find a place of hiding. I'm sure is what took place there. I just say this, we need, we need prayer at Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, and think, about, think about my points today. We need the Holy Spirit, right? We need God to work. We need each other, right? We need a body, a community. We need Jesus. He's the center of everything. We need servants to serve one another. We need boldness to tell others of Christ. We need God to work to convict, to bring sinners to Himself. And of course, it, it's only natural that we need prayer. We need to pray to God that God would work in our midst. What we need. I just encourage you all to come to our prayer meeting. You know that 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 meeting. It's like attended by uh, not very many. It's kind of discouraging to me. But you know what? Here's what I think about that. I've had several people say, "Yeah, I'll just cancel that thing." But I say, you know what? If we cancel that, uh, then who gets the credit for building Rock Valley Bible Church? When do we gather together to pray? We need to pray. I just encourage you to come to that. I know it's scantily attended. Um, I know sometimes it may be boring, but come and change it. Come and pray. Because we need prayer. We need, we need to plead that God would, would come and work, that we'd see the glories of Christ, that we'd see Him work in our midst. Well, there's the history of the early church. I've tried to use this in an applicational way to help us out. We'll look at Acts 13 and following next week. Let me pray. And then you'll all be dismissed. We just have a potluck afterwards. I think we all are here regular about it. We know what that's about. Ethnic food. I know Yvonne was cooking enchiladas. It was really good. Um, if you were come and you said, hey, I forgot food, wasn't planning to stay, but you know what? The Bible says I, you know, there, there's something about eating together. Stay. we got enough food for you. You can stay. Oh, I had an appointment with somebody. Well, cancel the appointment. And say, you know, i got something more important. i got to join up with God's working in the church. So, encourage. If you have to go, you can go. Don't feel any... We shop, there goes the sinner who's leaving, right? No, it's not like that. It's just fine. I understand how that goes. Boy, but if at all possible, boy, please, please join us. That would be great. Let's pray. Oh, God, I think this week of, uh, of seeing your work in the church, 
and have been stirred afresh by what you could do among us and would pray that you'd do it. Uh, I pray that you'd, you'd come among us in your spirit as even we know you, you come when we believe certainly, but even Peter was filled several times empowered by the Spirit to accomplish His work. And I pray You would do that for us. I pray our body here would be a body devoted, committed to one another, um, serving one another, helping one another, being with one another, and loving to do so, encouraging one another, lifting one another up, praying for one another. Think of all those who are gone today. And uh, we would pray that they'd feel an ache in their heart of being gone. pray they would enjoy themselves where they are, that they would even come back together next week as they come back from their many vacations and days away to really come and, and delight in You. Uh, I pray that Christ would be centered in all that we do. May we preach Christ and Him crucified. May Jesus be our heart and our passion, our soul. May He be our love. May You change us as we are with Jesus. I pray You'd raise up servants. Not only leaders in official capacity who serve, but also a body of, of ministers who would serve in the body, would serve and, and take care of others and help others with their real needs. I pray for boldness. God, I pray for myself. I know how I lack that. And uh, I, I need that to speak with others. I think even of my, my neighbor having opportunities with him, hopefully just praying for that. Lord, we pray that you, you would give us yourself Work in a miraculous way amongst us. Um, convict people of sin. Convert them. Whether it's children here, whether it is um, neighbors or co-workers or classmates or wherever, I, I pray that you'd convert them. I pray that you would work. Paul, he was your chosen instrument. It's so clear your sovereignty of calling people to yourself. And pray that you would do that. I, I pray, Lord, that we would be a praying church. I pray even for our prayer meeting. I pray that you would cause that to be a time filled with joy where we would pray together. I know how easy it is when there's a great disaster maybe to come and pray. If I'm in prison, they would come pray for that. But I pray you'd teach us to have great joy to pray over even the little things. Lord, that you would accomplish a work in your church for your glory and that we might get a taste of what the church is like in the early days of the Scriptures. I pray even this week that you would help us, be with us, sustain us, cause us to look to Jesus, who's our only hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. You're dismissed. Have a good day.